all things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn your Bible to John chapter 2. How many of you would be honest this morning and say, you know what? I'll be honest. I love going to weddings. By a show of hands. Okay, just see a few ladies and that's it, basically. Um, how many of you would say, you know what? Not a big fan of weddings. I see some hands going up quickly there too. Okay. Some of my favorite times in life, especially earlier in my marriage, is my wife would say, so-and-so is getting married next Saturday, but you don't have to go. I was like, yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. But as the preacher, you often have to go, right? <laughs> That's part of it. But I have come to actually enjoy weddings um, the older I get. And I will say, especially the weddings I've been to with you folks in this church, you have fun. And so it's actually um, enjoyable. I'm looking forward to the next one. So, um, so yeah, invite me to weddings. That's fine. I was, but I was thinking about a few weddings that we've been to over the years that have been crazy. Um, one time we were at a wedding and some friends of ours years ago, and there was this dog sitting right outside the church door, the side door, and I don't know if it was in heat or in labor, but it howled the entire entire wedding. And nobody went and took care of it. I don't know what was going on there. They needed an usher. And that that same wedding, uh, Jesse was reminding me of this, after, during the reception, they had a five-layer cake, and they started cutting it from the bottom at some wrong angle, and guess what happened? Yes. It landed on the church gym floor. Um, people trying to eat cake off the floor, I guess. But it was bad. Another wedding experience we had, we went to the Delta. Crazy experience. We're over there. I can't remember what town it was. We had to go the night before and stay in a hotel, and it was a really cheap, bad hotel, like bad. Probably the worst hotel we ever stayed in. It was so bad that we were under the covers, and mosquitoes were still coming in there, and the mosquitoes were like this big. It was an awful experience. And so the next day, we have the wedding, and we go to this little beautiful little church by a creek, and across the street, there, there's corn, you know, corn stalks as far as the eye can see. I kept waiting for some guy in a scary costume to come out. It was just, it was kind of scary. The wind was blowing like 50 miles an hour. It was like crazy wind. My hair, I had hair back then. It was going everywhere. I, I have pictures to prove it. But another wedding I remember when a, a, my friend's brother was in the wedding up here, and he, he locked his knees and passed out. Just boom. Of course, everybody's like worried, and some people are laughing. But, and so weddings can be entertaining. Interesting interesting things can happen at weddings, and we're going to talk about a wedding today in John chapter 2 where something interesting happens. Um, Obviously, it's something greater than anything I've mentioned to you, but um, what I want you to see before we even read it is that in John chapter 2, this is basically an insignificant wedding with an insignificant couple in an insignificant town, but... Jesus is going to show up and do something very significant. And that's why we get to read about it today. So if you, are you, if you found John 2, verse 1, say word. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. 
And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto them, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, and his brethren, and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. We're going to see a message today entitled, The First Miracle. And we know this, but most of you probably already knew this as I began to read it, that this is Jesus turning water into wine. And the way I want to approach this text this morning is to kind of go through these verses, give you some comments, and then I have two main points I'll give you at the end. Is that cool? Y'all ready? All right. Verses 1 and 2. Let's look at those verses again. It says there that on the third day, and, and I think that means the third day from what we saw in chapter 1, where Jesus is talking to the disciples, particularly he's talking there to Nathaniel. I think that means the third day after that conversation. Some people think that means the third day of this wedding, um, this wedding celebration. But nevertheless, a few days later, from what we read in chapter 1, they're in a place called Cana of Galilee. Cana was a very small town in northern Israel in the, the region of Galilee. Um, it's, it's not really known for much, uh, but it's known for this. And we also see in John 21 that Nathaniel, that disciple Jesus was talking to at the end of chapter 1, John 21 tells us Nathaniel is from Cana. And so it's very likely that he invited Jesus and his disciples to go to his hometown and check it out and, and, and even to this wedding. But also verse 1 tells us something important, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the disciples were, were there. So look again at verse 3. So it says, when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, they have no wine. Now before I dive off into the wine part, I think this is worth saying that Jesus showing up to a wedding uh, certainly shows us that marriage is good, right? It's a God-ordained thing, and God desires us to be serious about our marriages and to take those things seriously, and, and Jesus here shows up and is a part of this, of this wedding celebration. And I think also it shows us it's good to celebrate. It's good for Christians to be able to get together and celebrate good times with other believers, Christians should not be sad, doom and gloom people. But sometimes I think we get that reputation. But as long as we're doing it in a godly manner, Christians should be able to celebrate uh, things like a wedding with each other. Just like anything else, right? Not to excess. The Bible says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. And so whether it's wine or, I'm going to step on toes here, food, or anything else, we are to, we are to act in self-control in those types of things, and temperance. Back to verse 3. So, these Jewish weddings were different than ours, by the way. Typically, we have a wedding that lasts less than an hour, and maybe there's a reception for an hour or two. 
these weddings would last for days. These celebrations would last for days. It was a long process. And so many people would come, many guests, and they're drinking all the, they're eating the food, drinking the wine. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, sees it and realizes, hey, they are out of wine. Now, have you ever had someone over to your house? Have you ever invited someone over and you're out of something? Someone's like, I'll take a Coke, and you go look in the fridge or the pantry. Oh, we have no Coke. You feel bad, right? Like, I wish I had what that person wanted. But we, what we can do, right, is just run to the store if we need to. Well, they really couldn't do that here. They really couldn't run to the store and get more wine. And, and also, for them, they were so big on hospitality in the first century. It was a big thing to provide for your guests. And so Mary knew this is not just a practical thing like people are going to get thirsty, people need wine. She knew this would bring shame on this family, this couple, and whoever's kind of in charge of that wedding. It, it would bring shame and humiliation on them if people started to find out we have nothing else to drink here. And so, and so that's a big part of this. And she says they have no wine. And look at verse 3 again. Um, who, does she, who does she say it to? She said it to him, to Christ, right? They have no wine. So here's the interesting thing. We don't have any record in the Bible of Jesus doing a miracle before this. I have read, there's all types of wild traditions of miracles that Jesus did as a child, but none of those are biblical, none of those are scriptural. Those are just like traditions that people wrote years ago, and, and you can, we can't believe those because they're not scriptural. But I don't know that Mary, personally, I don't know that she had ever seen Jesus do a miracle. I mean, it doesn't tell us. But we do know his conception was miraculous, right? She knew the, the way he was conceived, and she knew all the things about his birth were miraculous. And so she knew that Jesus was different. Can you imagine that, um, parents, by the way? Jesus as a child, as a teenager, can you imagine? He never sinned. He never disrespected his parents. We can't imagine, can we? <laughs> That's insane. That Jesus, we can't even imagine that Jesus, I mean, it's like, Who's your favorite son? Mary's like, it's Jesus. <laughs> There's not even a hesitation, right? Definitely Jesus. He's yet to backtalk me, you know. But I can't even imagine. That's, that's, somebody should make a, a sitcom out of it because it's got to be funny. He's perfect. He's perfect. Well, so I do think she observed him, right? His, his words, his actions were pure and holy. But I don't know that she'd ever seen him do a, a, a miracle. And yet, in verse 3, she sees a need. She looks at Jesus and says, they have no wine. She wasn't just making a general statement. She was, she was now expecting that he might do something about it. And she wasn't expecting him to go make some wine or go run down to the store. I think she was expecting something more. Well, look at verse 4. An interesting verse here where Jesus says, uh, Woman, what have I to do with thee? And that's interesting. Some people, I think, have taken that and out of context. I don't recommend any children in here calling your mother woman um, in that sense. Um, my sons definitely better not call their mother woman in that sense. But in their day, this was okay. As a matter of fact, at the end of Jesus' life, he is on the cross, and he looks down at his mother, who's standing there beside John, and he says, Woman, behold thy son. And he uses the same word there, the same language there. So it was just a way to talk. It wasn't being disrespectful there when, he's, when he calls her woman. But then he says here, What have I to do with thee? In other words, is this, is this something I'm supposed to deal with? 
And then he says, my, my hour has not yet come. And so he, he, I think he softly reproves her. This is not like he's getting on to her bad, but it's like a soft approval of, it's not yet time for me to reveal to the world who I am. Because at that point, only a few people followed Jesus. He only had a few disciples. And he's like, is it my time yet? And so, verse 5, <laughs> I like this. Jesus said, woman, what have I to do with thee? It's not my time yet. Mary looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. Like, did she not even hear what Jesus just said? <laughs> you know, or did she just believe he was going to do it? He was going to do something. I think it just shows Mary's faith, her faith in, in Christ. And think about how strong that faith was. She, I believe she knew he could do something here and he could take nothing or take no provision and make provision. He could provide. We need a faith. Here's, a, here's the application. We need faith like that. Do you believe in your life there are times when you don't have what you need to make something happen and yet God can step in and make that thing happen? God can open a door, close a door. He can make a way when there seems to be no way. And Mary had this faith that looked to Jesus and said, and looked to these people and said, do what he tells you. Another thing, not only do we see faith here, but I think we see obedience. Uh, one writer about this verse said, um, the direction which Mary gives to the servants belongs to us all. We must perform simple obedience to Christ in all things. I like this. It says, his sayings must be our doings. When she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do, that's a good lesson for us. That whatever Christ tells us to do through his word, we are to do, right? To obey, obey him. Verse 6. In verse 6 it says there were these six water pots, or these water pots there, and these pots were used for, you know, the, the, the Jewish people were all about these purification rituals and, and the washing rituals, so there had to be plenty of water there, and that's why that was there. Look at verse 7. And Jesus now looks to the servants himself, and he says, fill the water pots with, with water, and they filled them to the brim. Did these servants go out and find some wine and, and put it into the water pots? If we believe the word of God, then they did not do that, did they? Did they stick their finger in there? Did they somehow change it? They did not. They simply obeyed what Jesus said. They took and filled to the brim. Many people say that the reason that the Bible emphasizes the fact that it was filled to the brim is to take away any doubt that something else could have been put in there to, to change it. Again, a practical lesson here to obey Christ. It is, again, this is practical, but it's our job to fill the water pots. It's the Lord's job to change the water, right? It's our job to serve the Lord, and it's his job to bring about the, the fruit of that service. Verse 8. Here it happens. Here, I think, is where the miracle happens, and he says unto them, draw out and take it to the governor of the feast, and they did. And so, again, at this point, I believe that, that Christ changed it and changed the water into wine and he told them to take it to this, this governor this ruler he was kind of over the celebration of, of something he did back then they had somebody over it and so jesus said take it to him verse 9 and 10 when the master of the feast when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not where it came from that a servant but the servants which drew the water knew uh, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom so he tasted it he tasted it, and he's like uh, this tastes amazing. <laughs> this is the best wine we've had. And so he calls the groom over, and he's like, in verse 10, he says, 
Uh, most people serve the best wine first, and then when people have had a little bit, their taste buds are kind of going, they'll bring out the cheap stuff later. Does that make sense? That's kind of what they, I guess that was what people did back then. But he says, you have kept the good wine till the end. And we'll make, a, we'll make an application on that in a minute. But uh, this, this, I can't read this without thinking about my Papaw Hill, who um, people would come by his house all the time to eat, preachers especially. Preachers would always come by and eat because my mama was a great cook, great country food, and they would always have a good lunch. And um, I, remember, I remember hearing my Papaw say, neat, my, mom, my, my mom's name was Anita. He called her Neat. Neat, hide the bacon. The preacher's coming. <laughs> I was like, Papa, you don't want the preacher? No, we're, we're going to give him bologna, and we're going to save the bacon for later. Save the good stuff for later, right? And sometimes he might have been joking, but sometimes I think he actually hid the bacon. But um, he would also take his chocolate candies and hide them in his bedroom so we, could, so we couldn't get them. But hide the bacon. I think about that because the, he's like, you have brought the good wine out later. You brought the good wine out last, and... And, and here, again, a side point here, but I don't know that the, the couple didn't know what was going on. I don't think. I think they're busy just doing what couples do at weddings, just kind of being around and, and the celebration. But they're like, I'm sure the groom was like, what do you mean? What happened? And I think about how Jesus helped them, and they didn't even know it at the time. They didn't even know it. Jesus benefited them without their knowledge. And as I said earlier, he saved them from shame and humiliation. And the application is, how many times in our lives has God saved us from shame or humiliation and just done things behind the scenes that we don't even know? Maybe God's opened doors, closed doors, directed certain things in our lives just to help us. And we should maybe just say, Lord, thank you for all the things you've done for me that I have no clue about. But thank you. Let's look at the last two verses. And it tells us clearly in verse 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana, and he showed forth his glory, and his disciples believed. And then, of course, verse 12 says they go on to another town. That's the story of the first miracle of Jesus turning water to wine. And I want to give you two application points. Are you all still with me? Two application points. These are two things that every one of us in this room need to believe before we leave out of here today, all right? Number one, we need to believe and know that Jesus is all-powerful. He is God Almighty. He is omnipotent, completely powerful. And when we see the miracles of Jesus like this one, it's just a picture. Some of these are maybe smaller pictures and leading, leading up to some greater miracles that shows a picture of how powerful Jesus really is. I was trying to look, look it up. I think in the Gospels, there are at least 35 to 40 miracles that Jesus performed. And if y'all fact check me on that, and I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but I think there's 35 or 40 miracles specifically. And John, in what we're going to study this year in the book of John, he's going to give us, I think, seven main miracles of those. But in the end of, at the end of John, some of you remember this verse, it says, if all the things Jesus had ever done were written down, it wouldn't fit in a book. That's a verse at the end of John. And so we don't even know all the things that Christ did. But the point of these miracles, the point of Jesus turning water into wine, as verse 11 says, was to manifest his glory that people will believe in him. He manifests his glory. He made known his glory that we would believe that he is the Son of God. 
Again, if we, if we think back to the story, how did Jesus turn water to wine? Did Jesus um, go up and touch the water pots, put his hand in the water? It doesn't say if he did. Did Jesus say a magic word, abracadabra? doesn't say that. Did Jesus, even, did, he, did Jesus make a long prayer to the Father? If he did, it's not there, right? I believe Jesus changed the water to wine by his own will. I believe he just willed it. Could God do that? Could Christ do that? Yeah. He later willed the, the, the storms to cease, right? He willed it. And one writer said, He who could do such a mighty work in such a manner was nothing less than very God. And there might be someone here today thinking, I need God to do a big, miraculous work in my life. I need Christ to show up just give me a sign or I need Christ to show up and just be right here beside me in a way that I can see something. But I want you to know that the will of God is stronger than any signs we see or anything we see because it's by faith, right? And if God wills something to happen in our lives, he can and will bring that to pass by his own will. He can provide for us. So, so first, he's all-powerful. Secondly, and... I want to focus on this for a few, minute, a few minutes here. Jesus brings quality to life. He brings quality. Now, we know he brings quantity as far as if we're Christian, we have eternal life in heaven. But he brings quality. Did Jesus turn water into cheap wine in this story? He didn't, right? They recognized this is good stuff. He changed the water into the best wine. I was, thinking, I was just making this simple... Uh, application or illustration, but Jesus doesn't just patch the tire when it goes flat. He gives you a brand new tire. Does that make sense? He didn't just patch the situation at this wedding. He, bought, he made it better. He, he makes things better. That's how it is in salvation, by the way. God, he doesn't just make bad people good. He brings spiritually dead people to life. He doesn't just make us, um, he doesn't just leave us like we are. He makes us new creatures. He makes his children of God, citizens of heaven. And so we need to know that he brings quality to our, our lives. I want you to think about this for a moment as we, as we move here toward the end. But can you think of a time in your life where Jesus or the Lord came in and brought quality to your life? Or help, some type of fix, some type of solution. And we need to remember this because we, we from day to day or week to week or year to year or season to season go through things where we need the Lord to help us. And I have a few examples I wrote down. One is maybe we need the Lord to come in and work on our attitude. Maybe it's our attitude toward Him. Maybe some of us have an attitude toward God that's too lackadaisical, that's too sitting back, not even caring about God as much. And maybe we need to say, Lord, bring quality to my attitude because my attitude is not where it needs to be toward you. Maybe it's your attitude toward someone else, other people. God, help me with my attitude. How about relationships? We can always talk about that, can't we? Marriage, Lord, bring quality to my marriage. Lord, there's struggles. We all have them. If you've been married longer than a day, right? There are marriage struggles. Lord, bring quality. I was reading a story this week about a pastor who is 
He's probably in his 50s, and he was, he's been married for, you know, whatever, 25 years, and he was talking about how him and his wife just almost called it quits, and it was just, their marriage was just falling apart, and they almost called it quits. And he said he went to his prayer closet, and he got on his knees, and he said, Lord, please fix my marriage. And that was his prayer over and over again. Lord, please fix my marriage. And through his prayers and their working together, uh, this marriage was healed. And he's been pastoring now and, and serving the Lord for 25 years or so. Maybe it's with our children. Maybe it's with parents. Maybe it's with other people in our lives. Lord, bring quality to my relationships. I could go on and on. Your job, church, activities. Bring godly quality, Lord, to my life. Mary, I enjoy looking at Mary in the story because she knew there was something wrong. She knew there was a shortfall, and she took it to Jesus. How many of us have shortfalls or struggles or trials? And we take it to anyone else but Jesus, or but the Lord. We hold it to ourselves, or we, we complain about it, moan about it, fuss about it. When the, remember the old song, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to take everything to him in prayer. And Mary went to Christ, knowing there's a shortfall at this wedding, and says, Jesus, there's no wine. Servants, do what he says. And here's what I want you to see today, church. When God handles our shortfalls, then he receives the glory. If I fix my situation, then whatever, you know, that doesn't bring God the glory. But when I submit my situation to God and when I pray to him and when I, again, leave it in his hands, and then he brings about some kind of change for good, and he handles my struggle, then I can't take any credit or glory. Instead, he gets the glory. And in this story, Jesus gets the glory. What about in your story, in your life, does Christ get the glory? Church, stop trying to fix everything on your own and first take it to him. Yes, we still have to fill the water pots. We still have to trust. We still have to obey. But let's take our struggles to Christ. The Almighty Lord brings spiritual quality to our lives as we trust Him. I have one more quote for you to see on the screen here. It says, Happy are those who, like the disciples, believe on Him by whom this miracle was wrought. A greater marriage feast than that of Cana will one day be held when Christ himself will be the groom and believers will be the bride. A greater glory will one day be manifested when Jesus shall take to himself his great power and reign. Blessed will they be in that day who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I hope that makes sense to you. <laughs> I hope you understand that we who are in Christ, who have repented of our sins and believed in Jesus Christ, we will one day go to a greater marriage feast than we ever experienced on earth. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will experience uh, all the blessings of God and the greatness of God and the glory of God for all eternity.
And though our sin would keep us from that, Christ died for our sin and overcame our sin that if we believe, we will have this amazing future. I hope that you know Jesus Christ today. At this time, we're going to...